Tonight I'd like to speak about um, awakening, among other things. And I'd like to begin with a double prologue uh, in the form of two brief passages from the, the Buddha, from the Diamond Sutra. Thus shall we think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Number two. from the ecstatic poet Hafiz. It's a very, very brief portion of a longer poem. At some point in the span of the retreat, I'll read you the whole poem, but this small portion. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. <laughs> the essence of the Buddha's awakening is finding, uh, is finding what it is that we do that ruins our life, that uh, creates misery in our lives, and, uh, and then relinquishing that, that cause of suffering. Fortunately, the teachings can be reduced, and have been in many little uh, pithy sutras from the Buddha, reduced to just a few words. And uh, one way of talking about it is that the Buddha spoke of, as Sharda did last night, that the cause of suffering is clinging, craving. The end of suffering is the relaxation of that tight fist of clinging, otherwise known as letting go. So we're lucky, we're very lucky that we can see in the midst of this sea of teachings that it all comes down to freedom coming through, uh, through the, the process of letting go or non-clinging. So I thought I would enter into the talk with another passage that speaks to this simple truth that it really guides us through all the teachings and all the nuances of the teachings. This is a teaching from the Venerable Ajahn Sumedho, wonderful monk. He says, you simplify your practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and develop that, achieve this and go into that, understand this, read the sutras, study the Abhidharma, that's Buddhist psychology for those of you who don't know, Learn Pali and Sanskrit, the Majamaka, the Prajnaparamita. Get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana. Write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. This speaks a lot about our tendency of mind. Ajahn Sumedha says, I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There is nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of, you may have, <laughs> some of you may have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. 
but instead I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go, let go. Even though the teaching comes down to the liberation through non-clinging, non-grasping, through letting go, it is, it is much more nuanced and, very, and deeply compassionate, shining a very bright light on those actions of body, speech, and mind that keep us locked into a continual state of suspended well-being, a continual state of searching, in a continual state of, of, um, of frustration and point to uh, the capacity of human beings to not just a simple letting go, but to experience in this very life, in this very body, in this very moment, what the Buddha called the sure heart's release. And when I say the, the words, the sure heart's release, it's a reminder, and this is a little sidebar, but it's a reminder that in the language of the teachings, often translated from the Pali and the Sanskrit, the word heart and mind are the same. The word chitta, we have somehow divided it and created these two universes called mind and put it somewhere up here although no one's ever seen one, but it's often a, we associate it with the brain, but nobody's found a mind in the brain either, and somehow separated from this thing called the heart. But of course, when we look at the, the heart, but we know what, that, what the heart is. We know what happens when we, when we resonate with the, the suffering that we find in our lives. We know what it, what it means to have our heart relax and, and open. And this is really, one way of thinking about it is that it is the opening of your mind. In fact, I was thinking this afternoon when I was thinking about sharing this, this little phrase, the sure heart's release, as the Buddha said, I had a, an Indian teacher once who was very simple in her teachings, but she would continually take her hand and she would put it on her heart and she'd say, guard your mind. Guard your mind. So for her, the sense of heart and mind were not, were not separate. As Sharda reminded us last night in her description of dukkha, dukkha that I, I won't necessarily translate it again, but I might give some different flavors of it tonight. She reminded us that the, the fact that we were born, that we are born, that in a sense the definition of being born is that it is the leading cause of sickness, old age, and death. This is really the nature of reality. And this is in fact, in the process of the Buddha's awakening, this was the first uh, intuition that the Buddha had as a prince when he was confronted with, uh, innocently, as each of us are, every day. He was confronted with what are, have, some, have come to be known as the, three, as the four heavenly messengers. The first three are the ones that really uh, shook him up. And he was in his uh, 29-year-old youth and uh, obliviousness, no offense to anyone who's in their 20s. I know I was oblivious in my 20s. But in his obliviousness and in the innocent tendency of human beings to, in our attempt to somehow guard against the enormous uh, confusion and scariness of being so caught in a stream of, of causes and conditions, so inevitably moved out of our control through this existence. We, were, we did not ask to be born, as, long as, I, as far as I know. 
Yet somehow through many different conditions, we, were, we came into this life, thrown into this life, were somehow told who we are, and then we have to somehow figure it out, and we're taught all these bizarre ways of trying to find relief that mostly keep us in, a, in this state of perpetual uh, dissatisfaction, and it makes us really queasy. And so naturally, we would not so easily be able to notice and be open to that fundamental reality that we are being carried along by this law of change, that the definition of our birth is that the leading cause of our death. So the Buddha saw in his obliviousness, he started to feel that, that queasiness, that stir of existential angst, trying to figure it out. He was just like us, a human being, and tried the, the excessive use of uh, all the intoxicants of his time, you know, all the pleasures of the senses. And he started to feel dissatisfied. But fortunately, we don't often think of it as fortunate, because it, it strikes us in the heart. He saw someone similar in age who was very ill. And he saw someone who was quite old and 29 years old. You, you wonder, how could somebody 29 years old be oblivious to old age? But we, as we do in our culture, we hide our elderly people away. We put them off in where we don't hear them. But they're lonely. They're, they're actually going through it. I just heard a story today of, of an 88-year-old woman whose 92-year-old partner is, um, has gone into the hospital and she's having to do everything herself and she, she hasn't gone into any kind of assisted living situation. And she's lonely. She can't go out to dinner. She doesn't feel like she can go by herself. She has to do all these things. It's tough. It's no wonder we don't, we don't look at it. But this, in this case, the Buddha's eyes were open and he saw that old age is a fact and it, it makes you kind of queasy. And then he saw a corpse, something we really hide out or we dress them up so they look like they were 25. But these are called heavenly messengers because they woke him up to reality. That point that Sharda kept making last night that we, we don't that our constant running from the truth of dukkha keeps us in that state of perpetual searching. The invitation, the, in fact, the prescription is to welcome it. And in the, in the case of the Buddha, it struck his heart in such a way and caused such a deep inquiry that, uh, that he could no longer live the life he had been living could no longer, in his case, he was meant to go into the family business, become a landowner and a kind of prince-like person and spread the, spread the, um, uh, the kingdom or the, the, the lands. But he, in his mind, he says, if, if I had to do that, for me at this point with what I'm understanding about life, the unreliability of all these things that I've, I've held up to this point, that I and everyone else hold so near and dear. He says, for me, it would be like sitting on a bed of coals because there's no peace in my heart. And he, so you can hear right from the first meeting with these three heavenly messengers, remember there's a fourth and I'll get to that, that the very um, insight that is having the effect of turning his heart turning his mind away from his normal preoccupations and toward a path of awakening is the fact of impermanence. The law of change and impermanence. That as one teaching puts it, everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. And until we come into harmony with this truth, we are in some ways in contention with life. So it shook him up to such a degree that he felt, a, he felt 
a, um, this concept that's used in the Buddhist teaching. It's, it's kind of subtle. It has many different meanings, but it's called samvega. It's a kind of shock, shock and dismay at the futility of, of trying to find a reliable sense of relief in the things that uh, we normally do. And yet, all that was offered in the, uh, in the life of the, um, of, for most of us, all that's offered as a, as a um, prescription for feeling good is to, uh, is this whole world of, of sense pleasures that Sharda spoke about. I have a, if I can find it here. So all of us have this very strong conditioning and just want to um, read something about the conditioning that we carry into the retreat and what even operates while we're sitting here. This is from Sogil Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher. He says, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems, this is a little hard hitting even though it's got some humorous points to it. Modern society seems to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This, sam, this modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, and sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and in, creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps that it's so ingenious at setting for us. As the 18th century Lama put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. So the Buddha began to realize this, and he thought to himself, why should I, who is subject to, to impermanence, my own life marked by impermanence, why should I seek that which is also marked by impermanence? There's something wrong with this picture. It just doesn't work to just keep, keep going from one pleasure to another. It leaves in its wake this environment of addiction. It leaves in its wake a hypnotic trance of continually being in a state of suspended happiness. Of, and what does it, it turns our present, this magnificent, although painful present, this poignant present, the only place that we live, it turns it into a kind of wasteland, a kind of place that we're passing through on our way to somewhere else turns it into, as Eckhart Tolle says, a means to an end. It, tur we tur it turns it into an obstacle, and it turns it into the enemy. And this is the, this is the samsaric trance that we can fall into if we seek that which is impermanent. So it's essential in the teachings as we awaken to get to know this law of impermanence. Of course, the Buddha didn't stop with this uh, bad news that, or the difficult news, not bad news, the difficult news that everything that arises passes away. He also said to be in harmony with this brings great happiness. And it's important when you think about the, the impermanence of our bodies and minds, the impermanence of, of samsara, of our our the so-called barren distractions. This is not so much a, a, an indictment of pleasure and having pleasure in our lives. If we don't have pleasure, even the Buddha said, if, we, if you don't have things that gladden your heart, it, it, 
is, it's just too difficult. We need to experience pleasure, but we need, we need to come out of that mistaken, that misplaced faith that the, cha- the, the pleasures of life, the changing pleasures, will give us a sense of lasting satisfaction, to make them an accoutrement or a support in our life rather than make them our devotion, which is what this whole samsaric consumer machine does. It, makes a, it, it, it entrances us into being completely devoted to the next moment, the next pleasure, and overlook and overshoot um, this, this one, the one we're sitting in right now. So easy to miss, too. How many of you have your sense of well-being tethered to, to when you leave here even? Or even to when I finish talking? <laughs> so easy is, our, is it for our mind to enter into the trance of time, into that, that toppling forward, I think Sharda spoke of last night. So I think that's why our necks are, tend to be, our heads <laughs> poke forward. But pleasure is important. It doesn't mean that we have to give up the pleasures of this world. In fact, Suzuki Roshi put it very succinctly when he talked about renunciation. He says, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in understanding that they go away. So impermanence was the the primary springboard to the beginning of the Buddha search. And I find it helpful to really explore what he actually went through, what, a lot, what experience, what did he see in real time, as much as we can tell, what did he see in real time that allowed him to somehow synthesize everything he saw into these Four Noble Truths that Sharda spoke about last night? What happened? And it seems, up to this point, that central in the process of what allowed him to see clearly was a recognition that whatever arises passes away. So once he knew, without, without uh, not just philosophically, but he knew from this right to his core that whatever he had, um, whatever there was about him and about what he gave his, what he devoted himself to was in a state of flux and ultimately unreliable, it didn't solve his, his uh, question. And he went out in search of something that would give him some sense of permanence. And the fourth heavenly messenger, fortunately, he saw, again, these heavenly messengers are those, hev- those messengers that that remind us of what, uh, what's possible. And he saw the fourth heavenly messenger was in the form of a mendicant, a, a renunciate, a, a monk, somebody who embodied the, um, the uh, life of simplicity, a life of renunciation, going against the stream. You often hear of the teachings as uh, against the stream. That, and he saw that there was something in this in the countenance, in the serenity of this monk that said this, uh, this truth or peace that I'm looking for, it must be an inside, an inside job. And he heard of the best teachers of the, of the day, and he uh, went and uh, s- began to sit with them. And in fact, elements of what you're doing on this retreat were some of the things that he learned. He learned about the power of concentration. And he very quickly developed the tools, the same tools that you're using. I talked to a few groups about this, but the tool that you've been using over and over is the tool of gathering your attention and sustaining your attention. Words in the Pali language are vitaka and vichara gathering and sustaining. And this, this simple capacity that each of us has in our mind is, the, is that which allows us to feel a sense of union, connection, 
wholeness, fullness, to reclaim and recover our sense of vitality and energy, all because our attention is gathering to this vital present, this vital spot. The only place where you can actually, you could say, plug into the, the resource of life, to actually feel life. As one of my favorite teachers, Nisargadatta, puts it, reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are merely mental. So when we're gathering, we're connecting with reality, we start to come alive. And with that come these other qualities with concentration. Some of you spoke about feeling the sense of wholeness or comfort, a sense of one-pointedness, a sense of uh, so much a point of uh, sense of one-pointedness in moments that you feel connected with everything around you. This is all the fruit of the simple activity of gathering and sustaining. Well, the Buddha did this when he was still a prince, a new renunciate, just coming on retreat just like the rest of us. And because he was so eager to get to the bottom of the matter of what, where a reliable refuge is to be found, he very quickly experienced some of the fruits of that uh, of practice and went into very deep states of concentration sometimes described as uh, super-mundane states, states of unmixed happiness, uh, states where there was no shadow at all of any kind of uh, difficulty or hindrance or no, no stuff in his mind saying, I should be different than the way I am and everybody else should be different than the way they are. Just one-pointed, serene in the silence of mind. And he was quite amazed by that uh, that kind of pleasure. But then he, something dawned on him that even that most delicious, most sublime abiding, wonderful state of concentration, although it had so many benefits in terms of the healing of mind and body to a certain degree, a, a smoothing, he saw that it, along with even though much more rarefied, much more refined, along with all the other um, ordinary pleasures that he had just um, put aside, he saw that like those, even these great experiences were subject to the law of impermanence. And he saw that they were marked because of their impermanence by that quality that Sharda spoke about, marked by dukkha. Under the umbrella of, of dukkha, even the most exceedingly high pleasure subsumed under the umbrella of dukkha because that experience passes away and is unreliable. And if, if one is not careful in practice, because these kinds of experiences do show up, that experience leaves a little trail as it as is the case in all experiences of pleasure, it leaves a trail of pleasant feeling. And when we don't notice pleasant feeling, we don't have mindfulness of the pleasantness which Sharda offered this morning. When mindfulness is not present for the pleasantness, it is immediately followed by, I like this. And that I like this is immediately followed by, I want this. And then that's immediately followed by, I have to have this. My happiness depends on it. My life depends on it. Pretty soon, in, a, in the, such an innocent way, we have gone from this state of openness, sufficiency, enoughness, those moments when we're just mindful. We've gone from that, if we haven't followed, if, we've, if we haven't been mindful during that trend, we literally enter, we take birth into a new drama of how I'm going to get back to that wonderful meditative state. Any of you have that experience? <laughs> and we can literally spend a whole retreat waiting for that sweet one, as waiting for that bliss to reemerge. And the Buddha called these experiences, he called them the springboards to nirvana because they inspire us. And if we didn't have some measure of, of comfort and collectedness, we wouldn't keep going. But he also describe them as the, the corruptions of insight because they, 
if we, if, to the untrained heart, we just are, we just get completely caught trying to recreate them and carry the, end up carrying the corpses of those old experiences. And it kind of burdens our practice. So even that, even those delicious experiences have to be recognized as uh, marked by impermanence. I, I brought a poem along to speak of this because we can often feel when we've hit one of those quiet places that uh, we've arrived. And then what often happens after, because of the nature of impermanence the, and the unreliability, the unsatisfactoriness, the dukkha of that experience, uh, when, when the, the next wave comes, as every wave of quietness, because our mind opens and relaxes, it's usually followed by a major storm. It's as though the, the vacuum cleaner gets turned on and up comes the next, uh, um, up comes the next thing. And we often interpret that, that as though our practice has gone backwards, but actually that's the sign that our practice has deepened. Better not to interpret it, but here's what uh, Hafiz... <laughs> Hafiz said this about it in his poem called The Ten Thousand Idiots. It's always a danger for aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the ten thousand idiots who so long ruled and lived inside have all packed their bags and skipped town or died. <laughs> so this is when we see this ever-changing flow of experience, this is why we have... We put much more emphasis on how it is we relate to our experience than trying to have experiences. Because it, it, it has, our suffering has everything to do with not so much what's happening. It really doesn't matter what's happening in your meditation. It does not matter. What matters is if you are able to meet it with that understanding that whatever arises passes away. That's essentially what Buddhas know. So realizing that his body was going to get old, sick and die, wanted some sense of being able to transcend this very difficult thing to bear. That's another translation for dukkha, that which is difficult to bear. He wanted to find something, and so he ran into some friends the same friends that he gave his first discourse to, he ran into some friends who were doing uh, very intense ascetic practices, and Adrian referred to these the other night. And in this case, he figured if he uh, denied himself food and comfort that he perhaps could transcend his body that way and uh, deny himself pleasure. But all it did was have the effect of making him very sick and tired have his mind wither and become weak and unable to really practice. So he saw that, that was, going to that extreme was not helpful. And he saw that going to the extreme of, of indulging in the, in the world of sense pleasures, not so, not so reliable. And it's at this point that he found uh, what he, what's been described as the middle way. And he took some food and uh, remembered a time when he was really quite well-fed and comfortable and serene, and a time when he was a young boy lying under a cherry apple tree or something like that. And he started to um, regain his strength, and then there was no one else to help him out anymore. He was on his own. And it's at that point that he sat down under the famous Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, where Sharda spent 13 years or whatever. Sharda and I uh, went to India for, uh, together back in 1986 or 7 and uh, sat under the Bodhi tree. I had all these idealistic fantasies about what it would be like to sit under the Bodhi tree. And our colleague, Christopher Titmus was doing a midnight sitting uh, for, I think maybe it was New Year's or something, under the Bodhi tree. And 
I was all excited to go sit under the Bodhi tree, and the whole time I was absolutely miserable. Everything in my, it was like a trick. Everything in my body ached, and I was in a pure sense of misery. And it was some kind of cosmic joke or something. But the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree. <laughs> And the first thing he did, well, he made a determination not to get up until he, he finally wanted nothing else. He wanted, he had the deepest desire, but it was the, the only desire that no other desire could fulfill, the desire for, for freedom. And he sat under the tree and he aroused uh, his concentration. He used the tools that we're developing here. But knowing, having had the insight into the impermanence of intoxicating experiences, and in fact the intoxication of concentration, he utilized the power of mind that comes with concentration, an enormous coalescing of, of, this, uh, of power, literally laser-like our minds can be when they are collected uh, in this way. What you're literally doing is you're, develop, you're developing microscopic-like power of mind as you pay attention moment to moment. You may not appreciate that. And of course, in a few days of practice, it may not, it may not seem as though you're having your awareness is that subtle, but it's a lot more subtle than you know, because you know, as you go along, uh, it happens so organically and gradually, you don't even we sometimes don't even know how sharp our attention is and how keen our senses are awake as we, as we practice. And that's kind of some of the mark of it, that the, the senses become clear, your eyes more clear, the sounds more acute, the taste. That's all because of the precision and the, the, the power of, of our attention, that microscopic power. So he aroused that power of concentration, but he didn't let the intoxication of it overtake him. Instead, he applied it. He applied it very carefully to, uh, to explore the nature of his experience. He was determined to find something in the flow of experience, some, somewhere in himself. He knew it was inside now. So he paid attention. He sat there. And what happens when you pay attention? You are as much, in some ways, an expert on what happens as the Buddha was. He was, as you are, visited by uh, that assault. Assault of, I think of the, the flywheel or the waterfall of thinking. Isn't it amazing, that waterfall of thinking? It's said somehow that we have 65,000 thoughts every day that come completely unbidden. And that supposedly 90% of those are repeats from the day before. <laughs> so he was faced with the, with the, the music of, of the mind, the thinking mind, he was faced, as all of us are, with the, with the intense experience of being embodied. The, and he paid attention to his body. He paid, paid attention to his mind, whatever it was that called his attention. And an interesting thing happened as he paid attention. A few different, few different things, and we can describe it as kind of figure and ground. It seemed that everything he paid attention to, rather than be, because he was so acutely paying attention, rather than being blown by whatever came into his mind, 
whatever his, his attention lit upon had the effect instead of brightening his mind, of strengthening his attention. So everything had the effect, even those, as you experience them, even those hindrances that Sharda spoke of last night. It's so interesting how when we're lost in a hindrance, for example, of the, of the wanting mind, the common one on, the, on a meditation retreat is what we call the VR, the Vipassana Romance, where into our mind, based on somebody we see and we like the way they walk or whatever it is, or their, whatever it is, their clothing, triggers a pleasant feeling. Again, we're, see, we're t- talking about how we again and again are born into this profound drama of looking elsewhere for a sense of well-being, fall into that state of craving and becoming. But that little thought of pleasure goes unnoticed, leads to wanting, leads to, uh, I've got to have it. And before you know it, there's this explosion, this effulsion of, of thought about mating and dating and marriage and divorce, all within the span of a minute. <laughs> and our body goes into a state of, of intense contraction and that, that heat that Sharda spoke about last night. And we're literally lost in it. Yet, when mindfulness is applied and we actually feel that state of desire, feel that burning, that subtle yet profound shift from being carried along by it to knowing it and feeling it, coming out of the objects of, because they're endless, whether it's the bell or the, the Vipassana romance, and actually feeling the state of that burning in our body it reveals itself, what does it reveal itself as? Another weather front, another changing condition, impermanent, unreliable, unsatisfactory, and that it, you can't hold on to it. It's just, it, it's changing. Anything that's changing is not something you can really find any kind of lasting pleasure in it or lasting pain in it, in this case. And it shows itself as just another Um, you could call it impersonal experience, something that arises and passes quite naturally by itself. Not me, not mine, not self, as the Buddha put it. This is not, this cannot define me. This is just a changing weather front. Such a different, different result when that slight shift from being carried along by something to noticing it. And in fact, the very presence of attention with that experience, that, that tormenting state of mind that can, VRs can be extremely painful. I carried one, unfortunately, for almost the bulk of a three-month meditation retreat. <laughs> and, well, I actually had two of them. <laughs> one person, was oblivious to me and didn't give me the time of day, which was, the other one actually became a a friend. But nothing like my mind projected. (laughs) And, but the amount of of postponement of well-being, the amount of suspended happiness, the amount of time I spent in that sense that my well-being depended on satisfying that desire was, was, is sad. And we do, we, we're all, we all tend to be caught in that. This is why it's so important to make that shift and to begin to notice those states of mind and notice that just because that state of mind is present, it does not mean it has to be acted upon. It can be recognized as a changing condition even if the, even if the object is not secured. Just like with the bell. Often if people turn their attention toward the wanting when that they're waiting for the bell, often the wanting passes away, the bell hasn't even rung yet, and you're fine. And, but we don't often experience that. That is why it's so essential in the teachings in these very subtle ways, not just in the more macrocosmic ways when we know that we're getting old and dying and everything's in a state of flux, but very intimately, moment to moment, 
we recognize that everything, even these states of mind that are so tormenting, are changing conditions. So the Buddha paid attention to these states of mind. He paid attention to his body. And he saw something interesting as he paid attention to what we call our body. Body, clearly, is a very useful concept. It allows us to have discourse about this this thing here. (laughs) This very much from our our present vantage point, in our conventional point of view, it feels like a thing. And it feels very much like mine, doesn't it? Doesn't your body feel like your body? That's a conventional understanding. It's a body. We all recognize what they look like. And it's not just a body. It's a human body. It's It's a unique expression of life. And we have a name for it called human body. It's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful to have a name for it, and we can talk about it. It's a great thing. But when we begin to examine this body meditatively, we begin to, and we've gathered our attention, and we're actually paying paying close attention, examining what we're calling our body. In the Buddha's case, he didn't find any body. All he found in the exploration of what we call body, all that you have found if you really look carefully, is that what we call body is this constant changing process of these elements, the elements of earth, air, fire, water. That's the name we add, that's the name that we give, earth, air, fire, and water. These ultimate elements, these material elements, this is the name we give to the experience of hardness, uh, softness, cohesion, uh, heat, pressure, vibrating, tingling. But he saw that vibrating, tingling, pressure was was in a constant state of flux, impermanent. Nothing in this body that could be clung to as something that would remain permanent and reliable, he saw that it is in a continual state of flux. Now, we know that in general. We don't ask to grow up. We don't ask to grow old. We don't ask to die. We don't ask to get sick. All of these processes happen organically, naturally, unbidden, selflessly. So he recognized that this body, what we call the body, is completely impermanent, changing, unreliable, and empty of any abiding self, unable to define us. And that is, in in our distant perception, in our ordinary perception, a lot of the way we identify ourselves, separate ourselves out from the ocean of life, is by calling this a body and calling it my body. This will continue to be conventionally true, but it is deeply, it's deeply liberating to see through that illusion of the body. We see even, we can even philosophically extrapolate that this body is made up of all of these non-personal elements of earth, air, fire, water. It is born through contingency, through conditions of our parents, our parents' parents. In fact, this body is is beginningless. When did it start? We can say, oh, it started with uh, the day I was born. Oh, no, it started with the the conception. No, well, when did that start? And, And it go back and back to beginningless time. So in some way, if we even think about it, we can see that we're ultimately, as Nagarjuna says, we're not the same nor are we completely different from everything that came before us. We're part of this sea of of interdependence, of causes and conditions. We're neither something that exists completely independently, nor are we nothing. But we tend to create in our mind this sense of solidity, 
and feel often like we are that one wave that has gotten separated from the ocean. Not realizing that we're part of this sea of uh, waves never been separated from the ocean. So the Buddha began to see the, as he paid attention to the body, impermanent, unreliable. And if you, held, if you hold on to it, you suffer. Dukkha, marked by dukkha. And there's no, this is, it's marked by the element of not self. This is not me, this is not mine. It is going through, its, it's doing its own thing. Remember, all things are impermanent. They arise and pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings freedom, brings great happiness. Meanwhile, fortunately, the Buddha was paying attention not just to the streaming sensations and the, the elemental changes, but he was paying attention to the sense experience, to the, what we call the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the, and this, the sixth sense called the mind, called the, the mind that thinks and cognizes. And he paid attention to those, and because he was quiet, what we call the different sense experiences started to show themselves as very discrete experiences, just very simple experiences. And in paying attention to something that was seen, let's say an inner sight or a sound, he saw that there in the moment of, of hearing a sound, there was the sound, there was the, what was required, there was a sound, there was the, the, uh, the base of hearing, it's called the sense base, the ear, and there was this consciousness that arose that heard the sound, and then all three arose, stayed for a while, and passed away. And he saw that, that, in the, that there was sound being heard, but no one who was hearing it. It was just sounds being known, arising and passing. And finally, he, as he went through all the senses, he realized that this is true of everything. And he, a very famous sutra came out of this realization. He, it goes something, it's called the all, and it goes something like this. In the scene, you can find this in your own experience. In the scene, there's just what's seen. In the heard, just what's heard. In the smell, just what's smelled. In the tasted, just what's tasted. In the felt just what's felt, and the cognized just what's cognized. That's all. No me, no you, no self at all, just those experiences appearing and disappearing. It began to cut through this feeling of separateness, this feeling of, of it began to unravel the, the sense of isolation, the sense of being alone, trying to figure out all of, all of, uh, how I was, how he was going to find his, his way home. He began to see through the, the self-illusion. He saw that everything was to be, to try to hold on to this selfless, changing process just brought confusion and, and suffering. And then he was visited by all the doubts, all the hindrances. But as I said before, the more he paid attention to all of this, whether it was the sense experiences, the, the physical experiences, the thoughts, the images, all the doubts and the fears and the pains and the memories, everything he paid attention to, rather than blow him like the wind, they had the effect of strengthening his attention and brightening his mind until there was a point that his mind was literally, his awareness, you could say, was shining in its clarity. You've heard some sutras, maybe it's a very commonly read sutra, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by everything that visits, the, all the hindrances. The unlearned person doesn't understand this, so they don't cultivate their mind. 
But then he goes on, luminous is the mind, brightly shining. And that brightly shining mind is untouched by the, by the hindrances or the defilements that visit it. Thus the yogi understands, and so there is cultivation of the mind. So as he paid attention, as his mind became brighter and brighter, reflecting everything very clearly, mirror-like, as Adrian was saying the other night, as he saw everything so clearly, he saw that everything was coming and going, the same things that had always come and gone, the same thoughts, the same images, the same intense emotions, everything that we have, everything that we continue to have, whether you're uh, awakened or unawakened. But his mind stopped grabbing, stopped pushing away, stopped creating a whole identity around my sadness, my sickness. Sadness was sad, sick was sick, compassionate was compassionate, love was loving. It was no longer in the field of me and mine and all about me, where everything, even somebody walking into the room, it's about me. Too loudly, I mean. Somebody making too much, it's about me. No longer about me, just a symphony of changing conditions. Not reliable, impermanent, not self, not me, not mine. And as his mind withdrew its tendency to grab and to push away and to fall into the delusion of personalizing everything, making it into a, a new idea called the imagined version of me, as his mind stopped doing that, it relaxed. And he fell into this tremendous sense of joy, not the joy of deleting what was in his mind, suppressing thoughts, suppressing feelings, becoming numb, but the joy of seeing the beautiful display of life, the painful display of life, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, being able to enjoy their arising and understanding that they passed away. He fell into what's often called the, the joy of equanimity, the serenity, the joy of non-clinging. And he knew that, this was, that there was something about this. This was a, a taste of a well-being that doesn't depend on getting where you want to get to. Everything could still be in your mind or not be in your mind, and your mind was open. And as he rested in that, in that uh, quality of serenity, no longer in that compulsive hunger to go out of himself in search. His mind instead settled back, it enfolded. And in a flash of insight, in a flash of insight, he realized that the very freedom, the very reliable refuge the very sense of relief that he had been searching for everywhere and through every changing experience was none other than the very nature of his own mind. Not to be found, as we've been saying over and over, not to be found anywhere else, but through the very consciousness, you could say, through which you are now perceiving, that you are exactly the Buddha, why do you not know this? Because of the veil that is in some ways as simple as the idea that I am not the Buddha, that I'm separate, that I'm not enough, that I'm insufficient, that I won't be happy now. And our list of all the things that we have to have before we can be happy, all the conditions, And he realized at that point that this was the, a taste, this was the, this was nirvana. He recognized that the very nature of his mind was nirvana. He described it, he said, there's a field of experience being, 
beyond the entire field of matter, entire field of mind that's neither this world nor another, nor both, neither moon nor sun, this I call neither arising nor passing away, nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth. It is without support, without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. All born of the seed of opening to the fact of impermanence. At first, he didn't think anybody could, uh, to, could understand, but he was compelled to, to, uh, uh, to let out a song, as many people do when they have this awakening, have an awakening. And he let out a song where he said, through many births, you know, that continual search, we do, you can think of it as metaphor for all the ways that we take birth into one desire after another, even in this very life. Through many births and the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Dukkha is birth again and again. O house builder, you've been seen. You shall not make a house again. All your beams are broken up. The ridge of the raft, the rafters of the ridge destroyed. The mind gone to the unconditioned. To cravings, cessation, it has come. And then he saw Although he was reluctant, he saw that there were those with a little bit of dust on their eyes, like, like us, that if pointed back to themselves, could realize the same fruit of his inquiry. That it's, that it, and he said, if it was not possible for uh, one to do this, I would not ask you to. Anyone can recognize their own face, their own realization. And his suggestion that if, if you aim for this highest freedom, this recognizing through recognizing the marks of existence and coming into harmony, the mark of impermanence, of dukkha, and of un, so-called anatta, or not-self, that you will, um, uh, that not only will you experience, can experience the happiness of freedom, but all the other kinds of pleasures of life will come in the wake of that. So don't worry about having to give everything up. So last uh, minute or so, I'd like to share one of my favorite passages that kind of relaxes all of this into a, an accessible um, poem called Free and Easy from Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. So why identify with, become attached to it, and passing, pass judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place. It is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, Infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't search. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. 
marvelous. Everything happens by itself. Let's sit quietly. No need to change posture. Nothing to do or to undo. Nothing to force, nothing to want, nothing missing. Just this moment. seven minutes for walking practice. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.